You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. And belly and up to the nine foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. My name is Chris. His name is Ed. This is Socks in the Basement. 30 minutes of socks for fans, by fans. A couple of buddies sitting at my bar here in my basement on the south side. And it's all brought to you by Family Waterproofing Solutions. Look, if you want to protect your basement, your foundation, these are the people to call. Bowing walls, seepage. You got water coming in. You got uh, an exterior wall that needs to be sealed. You need to get the water away with a yard drainage system. You need to clean the gutters. You need to have the sump pump looked at. The concrete is going up and down. It needs to be evened up, and you don't want to break it all apart. They can handle all of that and more. In fact, go to FamilyDry.com, see what a difference a family makes, and see all that they can do to help you out. Family and veteran owned and operated since they started in 2013. Give them a call 24-7. Mention Socks in the Basement, and you get money off 708-330-4460. Six, My friend, we for a couple of weeks, at least three episodes, maybe four, harped on a couple of different things that the White Sox didn't seem to understand. And then they finally break the losing streak. And right there for everybody to see was exactly what we were talking about. And one of the shining moments for me, Ed, was Andrew Vaughn in a 3-3 tie coming up in first pitch hitting a three-run home run because, as we had pointed out on the last episode, he benefits from not swinging first pitch because when he does jump on a pitcher, the pitcher is unaware and the pitcher has read the scouting report and the pitcher has prepared for him to take. So he's able to take advantage of it and we compared him to Paul Canerco, a guy who he sat down with in spring training and talked hitting with that was a story that was out during the spring in case you missed it. And here is the relief pitcher, Barlow, after the game, talking to Scott Merkin, a regular here on Sox in the basement, and his quote about the Vaughn home run is, quote, looking back, definitely should have gone probably slider. That's been my pitch all year so far. That's all he throws, Ed. And he continues, but left a fastball over the middle, ambush, looking for it. Good hitters don't miss. We talked about it. It happened. It was a big difference in the White Sox winning that game. I'm not saying we did had anything to do with it. We're just fans, though, that noticed these are things that the team needs to start noticing, and it happened. Well, and that's where the frustration was for us, right? That's why we were sort of yelling about these things. We're like, okay, we're just we're just two guys watching the game, and we're two guys that are are looking at what's going on with the losing streak and looking at the team. And we can see these tendencies and we can see these things. If they're paying attention, this is a good thing. If they are trying to change things up, it's a good thing. The fact that Andrew Vaughn was in the two hole, it's a good thing. That was a good thing. You know what they did from uh, from spots two, three, four, and five in that game? They finally lined up four guys in the heart of the order that are least likely to swing at the first pitch. They went with their most patient hitters and it paid off. And, and then when right. they did jump on a pitch, it threw off the pitchers. And that's what it, it's not. You never swing first pitch. But if your tendency is to swing first pitch, 
pitchers will throw you junk at the beginning. The, the Kansas City relief pitcher generally does that. He says it in his quote. I generally do that. I throw a slider. But the scouting report on Vaughn is he doesn't swing first pitch. And now you can play games up at the plate. Now you have the advantage. Now you can take control. If you're up there and you're predictably swinging at the first pitch all the time, which this team did a lot in the first couple of weeks, you allow pitchers to plan for you better and you have less of a chance to surprise them. So I it, great that that worked out. It's awesome. Something I don't understand still, even though I, I am much happier with the fact that it seems like Rick Hahn had a conversation with this. I, I feel like these coaches got back to town and he sat down and said, we've got some problems. Okay. Uh, I never, ever want to see you pitch to Byron Buxton again with the game on the line and first base open. He made comments about how uh, he wasn't happy with some things and he waited and had private conversations with his coaching staff. And I think that was said. And I also think he, uh, Tony LaRusso was told Larry Garcia is a specific kind of player and you're using him wrong. And that's why Garcia doesn't start for two straight games. Tony does use him the way he's supposed to be used late in that second game against Kansas City as a pinch runner, and then he bats him ninth, playing second base. That is how he should be used. And I feel like Rick Hahn got them back home after they had been gone for a week and was like, whoa, 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 what the hell is going on here? Well, not only that, but, you know, if, if I'm Rick Hahn, I'm looking at him going, why aren't you playing the guys that are performing, right? So, Larry Garcia whatever else you may think of him, isn't one of the guys that's performing right now. And you and I talked about it before. If he was hot, it would be understandable. You'd put him wherever you can in the lineup to try and jumpstart the lineup. But he's not. He's one of the worst hitters on the team this year, and it's below his, well below his career norms. It's well below what he should be doing or what we would expect him to be doing. But still, if he's scuffling, why is he getting so much play over – even somebody like, say, Danny Mendick, who is never going to be a starter on anybody's team, really. I mean, he is what he is at this point. And it's no disrespect to Danny Mendick, but he's a bench guy. And I would argue that I would play Danny Mendick at second base over Larry Garcia right now, based upon the way oh, that he's played and, defense. And, and so would I. And, 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 and I don't think that Tony ranks them in that order, but I would rank them in that order based upon what I've seen early on in the season and, and over their career. And what's crazy is we gave him five and a half million dollars and Yolbert Sanchez just moved up to triple A and didn't miss a beat. Sox on 35th broke it down here this week and asked the question, how soon could he be here? And is he a long-term answer or at least an answer this year at second base if they need it? You know, Josh Harrison off slow, already dealing with an injury. They haven't been able to figure that out. And you sit there and you look at the contract they gave him. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And we always seem to come back to him. So I don't want to spend the rest of the show on Larry, but he's, he's just, he's like a, He's he's like a flashpoint for a bigger problem. It wasn't the perfect offseason that I thought they really could have had. Uh, they, they did make some mistakes on how they spent their money, and their manager hasn't respected certain players as much as he should and given way too re much respect to others when he's filling out the lineup. Look, there is a use for Leary Garcia. I mean, what the heck? He gets a home run in Game 3 of this series against Kansas City, so he can do some things for you. But I don't know if I'll ever get Tony's lineups ever. I, I, I almost have to just kind of accept that they're there and hope for the best. Gavin Sheets in game three batting third because he's a left-handed hitter over AJ Pollock shows that Tony still just looks at what side of the plate the batter is standing on instead of what the player is capable of doing. 
Pollock is an over 800 OPS for his career against right-handed pitching and left-handed pitching. Where he stands on the side of the plate, whether he's a right-handed batter or a left-handed batter, doesn't matter. But Tony only sees old-school things. He still looks at baseball the way that managers looked at baseball 30 years ago, and the game has changed slightly. And I would imagine that's the next conversation that Rick Hahn has with him, especially if Pollock starts hitting at the bottom of the order. And in particular, if it's something where guys who are left-handed but not necessarily a better hitter than somebody who's further down in the order are getting play in key spots in the lineup where, like, I don't have a problem necessarily with saying that Gavin Sheets could hit third against a certain pitcher, okay? Because he is one of your power hitters. He's actually doing an okay job this year. It's not He's not great, but he's not terrible. And, you know, that's that's maybe a way to jumpstart Sheets a little bit, too. But that said, if it's consistent where against righties, A.J. Pollock is in the lower part of the lineup, and what's towards the top are guys like Sheets or Larry or Reese McGuire when he's in there, um, because they are left-handed batters, then yeah, then we've got, you start to get an issue. And you could make the case for saying that you just want A.J. Pollock towards the bottom of the lineup to stabilize it or something like that. But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is, you're right, the old school platoon thing where this pitcher is hard on righties, ergo I must put a lefty up there, even if you've got a right-handed batter that has never had a problem, no matter who the right-handed pitcher is, they've just been able to handle them throughout the course of a lengthy career, and the numbers are there to back it up. And that's, you know, that's what's key. Now, also, for this particular game, I'm willing to concede that A.J. Pollock looks a little rusty at the plate still. He hasn't he hasn't picked it up from that little time off for the paternity leave and the and the hammy. So and that and that might be the right move. I'm you know what yeah, I'm, and th- that might be the only thing that that saves that move. I get nitpicky with Tony because of the way that he's been over the the first couple of weeks. I mean, look, I, I I'm the guy that sat there last year and said I think that he can do a good job for this team. He's driven me nuts over the last month, and I think like most fans, it takes a while to come down from that annoyance because it really has been kind of aggravating, I think, to, to watch some of his decision-making. Uh, Ed, we're going to get to our guest here in moments. Before we do, I want to remind people that before you go to the ballpark, the, the best value in town, uh, a great place to start if you want to have a couple of drinks before the game uh, to get some food in your stomach so you're not running around trying to figure out what they have in the ballpark and what they don't have in the ballpark. And at a great price, Cork and Carry at the park, 33rd in Princeton, right in the shadow of the ballpark, a Southside tradition with an award-winning menu of burgers and ballpark favorites. Uh, on Mondays when the Sox are not at home, they actually do those burgers for two for one, which is a great deal. They have an extensive bar, a rotation of craft beers, familiar favorites, spirits, and wines. They are your home base for pregame, postgame, and viewing parties. You can actually rent the place out. You want to have a big party right outside the ballpark? That That's a place you can do it at. Uh, so make sure you get over there before or after a White Sox game. It is a great place to be. The, the parking is such a mess out there. Why not just spend an hour after the game and head over to the cork and let it clear out? Because otherwise you're just going to go nuts. You know, at this point, there's no easy in, easy out for that ballpark. So you make a day out of it 
and spend some time over at the cork. We're dropping off stuff all the time from uh, from Socks in the Basement. So you stop in there. You might see some koozies, some hats, some keychains, uh, different things that we leave there for, for White Sox fans and Socks in the Basement fans. You might even bump into me or Ed. It happens. Yeah, it happens. We're in there a lot. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we talk the talk and walk the walk when we talk about Cork and Carry. I really do believe everything I say about that place because I make that my spot at the beginning and uh, before a game starts and then after a game. Uh, remember, they're over at 33rd in Princeton. Check them out next time you're out at the ballpark. Join us on the phone line right now, a guest that I, I think I've always wanted to have on this program because he is the first White Sox player I ever met. And, and I'm going to tell the story here in a moment, but let's welcome him in. John Cangelosi. How are you, John? Good, good, man. I appreciate you having me on, so I'm excited uh, for what you got to ask me. Oh, well, listen, first off, I got to tell the story so people understand. A nine-year-old Chris Lanuti standing inside of a bank vestibule at 85th, 86th in Kedzie in 1986. And it's summertime. You guys are clearly playing. You probably have a game later that day. And ATMs were brand new. And my father's talking to me, and he obviously zones out his nine-year-old kid at one point, because I remember being in mid-sentence, and he just leans forward to the guy in front of him who's working on the ATM, and he goes, John? John Cangelosi? And you, like, turn around, and you're like, yeah, that's me. And you start having this big conversation, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you look at him, and you're like, I can't figure this thing out. And the two of you sit there and try to work out how an ATM is used, which is hysterical, but it was brand new back in the day. When you get done, you wait for him to get his money out, like your old friends, and you walk out into the parking lot, proceed to open up the trunk of your car, and you just start handing me stuff. You're like, hey, kid, you want you want some baseball cards? I got some baseball cards. I, you, It was like you had every giveaway that year at the ballpark sitting in the trunk of your car with your gear to go to the game. It may have been one of the coolest things I ever remember as a child, John. Yeah, I mean... First of all, I'm, I'm glad we had that experience, and I wasn't like like an ass, but it's a great story. I'm glad that I ran into you at the Irish Fest, or else I would have never known the story. But yeah, back in the day, man, it, it was like learning lear, learning how to use uh, ATMs and and carry that cell phone that was like nine feet tall. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. You you were born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, you come to the South Side for your first stint. That is your first season playing Major League Baseball. Were you? Would you have been surprised at that time that somebody recognized you? Would that have been like a new experience for you? You know, yes, but then you know, not not to you know, I'm flattered every minute because obviously I wasn't a, a big name player. But the one thing about Southside fans, they recognize. I mean, they're very educated fans. They're very loyal. And to fast forward, even when I was done playing with the White Sox, you know, years later, you know, heavier, older, whatever, I mean, they, they recognize me, which baffles me, but very much flattering at the same time. Yeah, we bumped into each other at Cork and Cary on, uh, on Western Avenue during the Southside Irish Parade, uh, which was awesome. It was funny because I, I we were doing something there. And you were standing with a friend of yours looking at the thing that said socks in the basement. I had some stuff out. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm the guy that does the show. And I'm thinking I'm the cool one. And you're like, I'm John Cangelosi. I'm like, holy cow, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was ironic coincidence. But, I, I mean, we were, I guess it was, we were, it was for a reason. So I'm glad I ended up going to meet you. 
So I want to tell you something else real quick before I get into some of these questions I want to ask you, because you played for Tony LaRusso, who's now managing this team back at the beginning of his career. Uh, for a short time, he was fired during the middle of the 86 season. But I, I did notice something when I was looking through uh, the life and career of John Cangelosi, and I'm curious, you seem to have an affinity for the number 44. You started with the White Sox as 33 and immediately switched to 44 when you could. When you went to the Pirates, you couldn't get 44, but as soon as you could change, you went to it. When you played for the Mets, you were number 44, but it seems like sometimes you couldn't get your number, and a guy who's been on this show about three, four times, former White Sox relief pitcher Don Paul, is the reason you didn't get number 44 in the World Series year in 97 with the Marlins. He was holding it at the time. What's with 44, John? <laughs> it's funny. Um, the first, my, my favorite number is number 10. I was number 10 all the way up to the big leagues. And ironically, it seemed like every big league manager wore the number 10. If you really think about it, a lot of the managers wear number 10 for whatever reason. Jimmy Leland, La Russa, uh, Terry Collins. And every club I played with, the manager was number 10, it seemed like. Um, but the, the way I got 44 was basically when I made the White Sox team in 86, that's the only number that they had left. You know what I mean? So I, I just took 44 that 86 season. I was number 33 when I got called up for a stint in 85. But 80, when I made the team, it was number 44. And then opening day, we're playing against the Angels. And I'm running my sprints before the game. And Reggie Jackson says, hey, kid, come here. I'm like, oh, shit, what is he going to tell me? He goes, hey, man, that's a big number to fill, right? And I'm like, hey, look, Reg, it was the last number. I got it. That's it. No disrespect. He goes, no, I'm just kidding. He goes, I, just, I wish you much luck in your uh, career and, and good luck to you. So he's pretty cool about it. That's awesome. Reggie Jackson immediately. He probably was sitting there thinking to himself, like, oh, he picked 44 because of me, and you're sitting there saying, no, it was the last one left, Reg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last, last jersey left. So, hey, I want I want to talk to you a little bit. I think it's really funny that you're on the show. I was going to have you on either way, but there's there's actually something here that I found that I find quite interesting after the last week or so of White Sox baseball. Uh, your first manager, Tony La Russa, and he was under fire during his road trip where they had, first of all, they didn't win a game. And secondly, he was doing something really weird. He was taking a guy in Larry Garcia who, is, you know, for his career around a 250 hitter, and an OPS of around 690, and he's batting him in the three spot. And what I found interesting was four times Tony La Russa took a guy with very similar career stats to Larry Garcia and John Cangelosi and batted him third in 1986 before Hawk Harrelson fired him. Do you think Tony looks at like lineups a little differently than most managers? Because White Sox fans were confused by that, but it seems to be something he was doing all the way back when he was managing you. Yeah, I mean, and, and Tony was also the manager that started batting uh, batting the pitcher or, or doing something. He did something really strange or moving the pitcher up to eight. Something, it was weird what he did. But uh, some, some managers just go by instinct. They maybe want to put a, a certain guy in a certain place in the order to shake things up. And obviously Tony, with his reputation and longevity, he could kind of tinker with things like that. So, again, I don't want to speak for Tony, but I think it's more of a uh, shake the lineup up, shake things up, go against the grain a little bit, and see what happens. 
former White Sox player from the 80s and one of my childhood favorites, John Cangelosi, on the line. John and every guest on Sox in the Basement is brought to you by the Village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure? You gotta go to Lamont. Recently voted one of the best places to take a day trip in all the Chicagoland area. Shop. Dine, drink, explore, and more, including an art festival going on this Saturday the 30th in downtown Lamont. Learn more at lamontdowntown.com. You know, we've talked to people that covered Tony back in his first stint, and they're like, he's the same guy. Uh, and, you know, we've talked to with players who were around Tony, and they basically said he's he's the same guy. So give me give me an idea of what it's like playing for Tony Larusa, because I would imagine it's pretty similar for the guys that are on the team right now. You know, he, he's a he's a player's manager. He's obviously one of the top educated, best baseball player uh, managers I played for. I mean, Jimmy Leland's right there. I mean, they're hand in hand. Obviously, Jimmy Leland was uh, uh, Tony's, um, you know, protege. I mean, he learned a lot from Tony. Their managing styles are very similar, but Tony's a. a one of the things that he does really well along with Leland is he makes everybody on the team feel like they got an important part, meaning your utility players really don't get the spotlight or the limelight, but they go out of their way to make them feel part of the team, which kind of, in essence, makes them belong and, and takes a little pressure off them as well. And the other thing that they do very well from a percentage standpoint is they put all their players in a position to be successful. By percentages, it doesn't mean that they're going to be. But at the end of the day, like Leland used to tell me, like, hey, you're in this situation because I did my homework, and percentage-wise, I'm putting you in the best position possible to do the best. You know, so I mean, Tony gave me my break. You know, when I broke in with the White Sox, I had Rudy Law in front of me, Daryl Boston. You know, I was third in line. They obviously made a big decision. They uh, untendered. They they let Rudy Law go to Kansas City. They sent Daryl Boston down to give me my opportunity, and and I'm so grateful for Hawk Carrollson, uh, Tony Russo for giving me that that opportunity. Yeah, and you know it's interesting to me. You, you you get a quick couple of games in '85, and then you get that full season in '86, and your your rookie year, and then you go on to other teams. You, that was it for your time with the White Sox. You spent four years in Pittsburgh. You you made stops in Texas and New York with the Mets and Houston and, uh, you know, the Marlins in 97. You're you're an older ball player by ball player standards, uh, 34 years old, and you're on a World Series team. And, and you get, like, I think a cup of coffee real quick with Colorado after that, and then that was a career. But you went to all these different places. You went to school down in Florida and it seems like you're most associated with the White Sox and you're around them a lot. What, what, what draws you to Chicago that even though it was a very short time, that it seems like when people think of John Cangelosi, they're like Chicago White Sox? Yeah, I mean, once again, I mean, at the very beginning, it was kind of a, a huge story that I even made the team. But I, I think what happened was the south side of Chicago related to me because I'm a blue-collar kid that came out of nowhere, and they resonated with that, you know what I mean? And it stuck with them and obviously stuck with me. And then I ended up getting married, having kids here, started my business here with Bo Jackson, our sports facilities, and it just, it, it is what it is. I mean, I'm remembered as a White Sox, and I have ties with the White Sox. 
Um, and I, I'm okay with that. It's a great organization. It's a great city. Um, and, I, and I'm glad I'm still somewhat involved with them. Tell me a little bit about what you and Bo Jackson are doing with the, uh, the sports facilities. Well, um, years back, I'm friends with Bo, obviously. But to make a long story short, uh, I, I've been in the baseball youth space for a while, given lessons, had my own facility. And I part, like I went to him and I partnered up with him and I said, look, man, I, I got this idea. I'll get it professionally done and I'll, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll bring it to you and then see if you want to be part of it. So um, obviously when he said yes, you're not going to say no to the best athlete in the world. So we partnered up. We, uh, we have four partners and we have three facilities today. It's, it's anywhere from 88,000 square feet. One and the other one is 120,000. Um, we're a professional sports facility that cater to rentals, lessons, you know, programming, teams. Uh, we also have a softball division. Uh, we have a strength and, strength and conditioning area. We have a rehab facility. So it's a one-stop shop. It's, it's a great avenue for young kids to, to start their baseball careers. You know, we're even doing softball camp or uh, football camps now. So it's an area where you can get all your work done, become the best and the best that you can be, and we're in the business to change lives, you know? You were part of a team that won a World Series with the Marlins. Uh, you, I'm sure, keep track of what the White Sox are doing right now. Even though it's early in the season, uh, a bump in the road over the last couple of weeks and an awful lot of injuries. As a fan, as a former player, looking at this team out of the gate, what are your impressions of it? What do you think the season's going to look like? Uh, what do you think about the angst that some fans have felt about the start of it, even though our, our Twitter account predicted three days ago in the middle of the the really bad run there where they couldn't win a game. Don't worry, they'll be in first place by the All-Star break. What do you think, John? I mean, I, I just feel they, they, they still have a lot of the, the winning components. They got a great manager. I still think they got momentum compared to like with last year. Um, they, they, they got a great nucleus in that clubhouse. Um, that's what they were missing for a long time as far as the, the players getting like getting along with staff or whatever. But I, I see a different team. Uh, I wouldn't even worry about it. I mean, the, the leaders that they have in that clubhouse, you're all going to have like ups and downs. You know, maybe it's better they, they have it at the beginning of the season to, you know, just check themselves and say, hey, listen, you know, we, we can't just go out there and throw our gloves on the field. Let's get back to the old ways. Let's get our work in. You know, if you need extra work, let's get there. Change the mindset. You know, stay hungry. Stay stay in the moment, one game at a time. And I, I think they'll be fine. They're, they're too good not to be fine. Awesome. John Cangelosi, he was really nice to this kid when I was nine years old uh, along uh, Kedzie Avenue at about 85th, 86th and Kedzie at the banking. And, and he's really nice now helping out a lot of kids, working with athletes and uh, working with Bo Jackson and following the White Sox. Uh, he was only with the Sox for a year, really. And uh, he's still uh, really around the team. And I appreciate you jumping on Sox in the basement and talking with us. Chris, anytime. I appreciate meeting you as well. You know, the reason we didn't bring it up last week is that I always feel like there could be knee-jerk reactions to things, but but home run and power numbers are down all around Major League Baseball. 
the White Sox are seeing a lot of hard hit balls not get out of the ballpark. Andrew Vaughn had one at least in this last series against Kansas City. Jake Berger had it in game one that would have gotten out of most ballparks based upon where it landed. And it, it really should have gotten out of any ballpark the way that it came off the bat. The acceleration of the ball coming off the bat, the launch angle, it should have been out. And it seems like there's a drag on the baseball, right? Well, yeah, and that's what, what players are pointing to is that this is the opposite of the 2019 happy fun ball, where in 2019, before the pandemic, everybody was hitting home runs. Guys like like Kevin Biggio from uh, Toronto, whose exit velocities are terrible. I, he's a light-hitting guy, but he was launching the ball all over the place. He's hitting it out everywhere, and it didn't make much sense. So they've, they've changed the baseballs around again, tried to correct from the, the happy fun ball days, and what you have now is you have a ball that no one is happy with because not only is it dulling the home runs and and causing some issues with getting the ball out of the ballpark, it's just it's changed how ball how the ball reacts off the bat. But you have somebody like Chris Bassett after the Mets and Cardinals get into that beanball war where I think what he said was basically it's one kind of ball for the first and second inning. Then it becomes a terrible ball in the third and the fourth inning. All of a sudden you're back to a better ball. It's like there's no consistency in what the baseballs are. And you know what? That's an issue. Uh, I got this thing from Jeremy Frank. It's a tweet. Uh, Jeremy works for baseball reference and he put out a tweet on Thursday that I find very interesting. Did a little bit of research. Ten parks last year had a humidor in it. And now this year, all 30 parks are using humidors, which supposedly I think what I read is they're keeping them all at like summertime settings. They want them all to be a certain way. But here's the problem. And this might be a problem along with the fact the baseballs are supposedly different and constantly changing throughout the game, which makes no sense to me in a professional sport. In 2021, those that had a humidor for both years, 2021 and 2022, there's barely a change, okay? 4.24 runs per game compared to 4.36. 1.01 home runs per game compared to 0.93. Those that already had a humidor, not a big change. Those that didn't have one in 2021 saw 4.26 runs per game and 1.2 home runs per game this year, it's 3.91 runs per game and 0.88 home runs per game. There is a greater margin. And the question I have here is, I just call me a dumb fan sitting down in, a, in his basement bar, but I remember the humidors were supposed to be able to combat different, um, uh, different conditions like Arizona dry weather or being a mile high in Colorado. That's what they were originally put in the stadiums for. If everybody's using one now, it's going to have a major effect on places that don't need humidors because they didn't need one for over 100 years of baseball before. Why is it that Major League Baseball can't get out of its own way and constantly changes the sport? Because not only is it bad for the sport in general that you constantly see these inconsistencies, but think about teams that build their, their franchise, especially coming out of a rebuild, upon one style of playing baseball, and then they get to the point where their window starts to open, and the style of baseball changes drastically because Major League Baseball, on a whim, does something weird with the baseballs or gives everybody a humidor. Legislate it when you actually have the fix in place, and what I think baseball's problem has been is that they legislate before they have the answer, and then they say, we're working on the answer, and they don't 
sometimes get to that point. They never quite get to the fireworks factor. Listen, another thing I want to ask you is, uh, A or B, uh, Andrew Vaughn without a mustache or Andrew Vaughn looking just like Ron Karkovice? Which do you prefer? Uh, in life, if you can look like Ron Karkovice, you go for it. <laughs> Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on SocksInTheBasement.com.